Hello, and welcome to episode 7 of book 4, titled The Captive of Orlo. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy it. Let's begin. Charon and Candide stopped abruptly, looking one another in the eye. Their army of frights, following at a distance, became restless and perplexed. It's this way, whispered a non-corporeal voice. It is right this way. I know to fear the elf line. Not that much further now. Not at all. Candide took the other six elves and goaded them from behind. Do not worry, the elves assured the mother. We fear you, we respect you. Enough to know not to be foolish and try to deceive you. We know who is the smarter among us. We know whom we cannot fool. Charon and Candide turned a corner, distancing themselves from their army, then found themselves once more in the village's square. How is it we have come back, come upon the center of this village once more? asked Charon, troubled. Candide tried to discern their whereabouts in Arlo, but she was having difficulty doing so. Have you once been inside an elfin village? Elven village? Charon mulled the question over in his head. I don't think I have, he finally responded. If I'm not mistaken, you must be invited in, escorted in. Should you enter an elven village on your own, or should they leave you alone once you've entered then? Candide concluded, should one enter a village without an escort or a guide, it's like it's a pit contained within a different dimension. And as Candide acknowledged this, all seven elves abruptly disappeared. The chains did nothing. The elves were playing us all along. Where is our army? feared Charon. The pair had become separated from most of their troops. Candide replied glumly, Our army can't fight us out of this predicament. Don't you see? confessed Charon to his mother. We were escorted by our elven companions. They were honest with us. They told us they were leading us into a trap, and so they have. Candide chirped and whistled, corralling the remaining thirty or so giants and trolls around the pair to shield them from any attack unleashed by the seven elves. There was a long silence as everyone peered in every direction, trying to anticipate how they would be attacked and when. There must be a way out of this city, Charon was convinced. There is, replied a voice right next to him and Charon spun around and stumbled over the stricken body of the nearest troll. But you'll never find it, came another voice directly behind him. Again, Charon whipped around, this time to see a giant, gravely wounded and slipping to the ground. Any ideas how we get out of this jam? asked Charon of Candide. Candide shrugged, not unless we happen upon another elf, one willing to help us. I don't see that happening. Immediately, elves appeared on the rooftops of the silent, empty structures that surrounded the village square. They unleashed an arrow or two and watched to see how the monsters that served to protect the pair reacted. They became hot and hostile, like a hornet's nest. They rushed upon the adjacent houses, the houses that offered positions for the elves to fire their arrows from. The trolls and the giants barreled into the walls supporting the roofs and the houses folded in on themselves and collapsed. This had no effect, however, on the elves, nor the manner of attack. They succeeded in eluding the troops of Charon and his mother. 
The elves materialized long enough to unleash deadly arrows before disappearing. Charon was scrambling. We're about to lose the last hold we have we have had on our army. We may very well be defeated. And Charon and Mother watched, dejected, grieving, as their troops became all the more terrified and all the more hostile. They cried out and entered one street, only to surface on the opposite side of the square. Trance began shoving trolls, bludgeoning them and breaking bones, and trolls in turn thrust their blades into the thick skin of their fellow soldiers, giants. What do we do? demanded a giant. Why, we're cutters down who get in her way, replied a lead troll. And a melee broke out. Not fifteen minutes passed before the pocket of soldiers that had served to protect the two persons of the North Wood had been reduced from thirty to a handful of deject dejected stragglers. stragglers. What do we do? asked Candide. Do we die here? I do not see otherwise, replied Charon. We are doomed. The seven elves trained their arrows, dripping with elf lime, on the pair from the north wood. But then sources of bright light erupted all around the pair. We are a powerful couple, assured one voice directly next to Charon. We are wise to choose you, to recruit you, to side with you. King Prenhook materialized beside the pair of humans from the north wood, apparently bearing no grudge of the defeat he had suffered at their hands not hours before. Rigor has promised me much in exchange for my army to fight the full-blood elves. He has recruited Felix and Jewel from among the magic wielders, as Elginon has sided with the full-bloods, and Salona has thrown in her support with the three dwarven brothers. The treasure you have been seeking, the, the elves have hidden away inside Sturm. They think it's safe there. You must recover that secret from the dwarves. You must take Sturm. My army of half-breeds will help. What would you have us do for you? asked Candide. I don't see how we exit this place, especially now that we are, are certainly defeated. Why would you help us lift us up after we made it impossible for you to rule? Rigor did approach me. He promised me a kingdom. I was not receptive to his offer. No king is, unless his rule is ended, and he must need rule once more. You may leave Arlo. You may return to your army. Only give me the knife. Otherwise, you will die here. Charon frowned. He did not hesitate, but turned the bloody knife over to King Prenthook. I suppose we are at war. For a god, apparently, and against the dwarves. Charon and Candide looked at one another. Candide conveyed softly, what secret of the dwarves is more dangerous to this world than even a hundred archers winking in and out? A secret that is revealed. We have seen what a bloody knife can do. With the knife gone, and allied with Charon and Candide, together with Toad and Jewel, the half-bead Prenthook would become an even greater king, but with a grateful dwarven king allied with him, all he had to do was restore the one thing the elves hid away in the Sturm, to expunge all the dwarves inside Sturm, kill every last one of them, defeat what defeat was too good for them, so said the cruel god, find the one dwarf rigor had described, a blind warrior, and not to kill him,
but to restore him alive to King Sturtle of Mi'kmaq. King Chase had traveled 550 miles, 550 miles as the crow flew over the Lukak Mountains along the Candestill Pass, due east of the coast and the sea. He was told to go to recruit his army to build his nation. For a full two weeks he traveled, anticipating running into someone, into anyone willing to serve a leader without an army, a king without a nation. But that never happened. He met not one soul as he traveled the road that curbed the northern shore of the Manges. What was this about? wondered King Chase. He was told to do this, but obviously he was being steered in the wrong direction. He was being lied to. Why? Was he being toyed with? Perhaps he was deemed a threat. Whatever the reason, he was building no nation. He was raising no army. He remained an army of one. Finally, as the sun was beginning to set behind the Lukak Peaks in the west, King Chase spotted a lone boy, a lone teenage boy, with matted hair, heavily tanned, sitting on an outcropping of rocks, dejected, chewing absently on sunflower seeds and spitting out the shells. King Chase frowned. He was skeptical. Yes, this was a person a living, breathing person, and he had, a, had to build his army somehow. Though this boy could not serve as a soldier, he was clearly no veteran. King Chase had to see where this went. So the king approached the boy. Hello, what, are, what up there? The boy refused to look up and acknowledged the man. Well, said the man. The boy ignored him. The king slapped the boy's knee, then danced gaily, kicking up a dust cloud before thrusting out both hands and grappling the boy's shoulders. The teen looked up. There was solemnity in his eyes, no mirth, as if the boy had been wounded, as if he had seen something, something painful, something he could not disclose. He winced and fixed his gaze upon the ground below. What should he do, the king wondered. He expected it would be easy to recruit an army, easier than this, but maybe it would be this difficult. Really? One lone man walking alone? Maybe the first recruit should be the toughest to pick up. King Chase wiped his sweaty palms on his slacks, then turned and planted himself next to the boy. He slapped the boy's knee again. Hello, offered the king. When he would not answer, King Chase faced the boy. Really? queried the man, a little put off. Not a single word from you? I'm trying very hard. King Chase looked westward, watched as the sun shone crimson red behind the Lukak peaks, and as the shadows lengthened. I'm building an army, stated the king flatly. He did not know how else to express that. Certainly not enthusiastically. That would be inappropriate. Who would serve a king that did not respect life, nor the virtue of service? No smile, obviously. What about dower? Perhaps urgent? The king waited for a response, but the boy said nothing, only crunched on sunflower seeds and spit out the shells. Whatever, grumbled the king, and he stood up. He surveyed the lands around him. The road he had been following continued to follow the swollen Manges as it made its way to the sea in the east. 
The screeching gulls overhead told him he was close, as did the pungent smelling air. He had been following the road for weeks, with no success on finding us one soul to serve alongside him. Soon he would arrive at the coast, and the road would end. Should he alter the course he had taken? Maybe he should dismiss what the bald man had told him. The king considered which way he should proceed. All around him, north and east and west, were rolling hills, rolling hills blanketed with swaying amber gra grasses. Mount Ish, the fortified home of a coven of powerful wizards and witches, dominated the northern horizon, a couple days' journey away. What was that he saw, the king wondered? That some five miles northeast, perched atop a dominating hill, a silvery snake of smoke twisting and climbing skyward. Something in the distance was burning. Perhaps he should go there, to the fire in the northeast. But before he could decide, the teen jumped down from the rock. Without looking the king in the eye, without engaging the man in any way, the boy turned north. He approached the fragrant curtain of tall grasses at the side of the road, entered, and disappeared. King Chase had it aside. He could ignore the boy and continue onward, following the road and hoping to find others. Though he had had no success for weeks, he could offer support to whatever home or village was burning, or he could follow the boy, the curious, troubled boy. Something told him to follow the team. Was it intuition? A king should not listen to his intuition, should he? King Chase hesitated, then turned and swiftly pursued the boy, watching the tops of the grasses dancing, giving the young man's location away. Sweating and huffing, the king followed the boy doggedly for a half hour or more. He was having his doubts. Should he intervene, engage the boy one more time? Maybe this time he would listen. Then, as the king crowned another hill, giving him an excellent vantage point, he could not deny what he saw. Instead of one slim shaft of smoke, he saw five. What was burning up ahead, between himself and the coast? He did not doubt entire villages were aflame, that whole populations were endangered. A rescue was the most important and valued victory of all. The king had to go to these towns and villages, rescue the survivors, assist in extinguishing the flames, leave this task of building an army for another day. King Chase rushed down the hill, at the base of the hill, he entered the Vale of Grasses and crashed violently headlong into the teen boy. The king stumbled and fell on his backside. He looked up at the boy. The boy peered at the king with those same mirthless eyes, then offered a solemn grin. Finally, he extended a hand and pulled the man to his feet. What are you doing? asked the boy. Deliberating, then dusting himself off, the king replied by saying, I fear for the well-being of these persons in these towns up ahead. I must go to them. They must be delivered from the flames. The boy responded softly, There is no saving those villages. There are only the dead there. That's what they would say. How can you be so sure? demanded King Chase. From one king to another, you know. Am I right or am I not right? King Chase shuddered. He wanted to shout him down to declare that the boy was a fool, that he was most certainly wrong, but he knew the truth. The towns were dead. 
The boy refused eye contact, only entered the grassy curtain once more. The king quickly responded. He followed close after. What do you know about those towns on the coast? Are you from there? Did you kill these towns? My gut tells me you are not entirely innocent. The king wanted, waited a long time. When the boy refused to answer, the king became frustrated. He wanted to extract information from the teen. Was there a good way to do that? Maybe it was, not, it was best not to know his role in the burning of these communities. Finally, the boy answered dryly, I did live among the elves for years. I did procure slaves for them. That's what they would say. The two trudged on in silence. The gaining of the truth was agonizing. King Chase regurgitated what the boy had said. What do you mean, you procured slaves for the elves? I do not understand. Humans, mostly, replied the boy. Giants are too stupid, trolls too stubborn. Humans are arrogant, they are lazy, but they are smart. I killed their leaders, they came to me. I cultivated their trust in me. I am a king, superior to all kings. They saw that in me. That's what they would say. King Chase seemed to know that, for whatever reason, this so-called king, this seller of men, did not pose a threat to him. No, he knew he was indebted to the boy, and that he would never serve alongside him, though such an army, led by both men, could never be defeated in battle. This boy was destined to be king. Years after King Chase had governed the boy's nation, years after King Ch Chase had governed the boy's nation with no prominence throughout the Abyssine, it would no splendor. King Chase's governance would only be a fraction of the boy's ultimate domain. You have decided to serve the elves? I do not understand. You would serve the elves and betray humanity? I have not betrayed humanity, replied the team. In fact, I have saved them. I have given them the will to fight. I have prepared them for their freedom, for their, for their love of life, for you. The two continued on in silence. The slender wisps of smoke dominated the horizon, standing out in the gaining twilight. The king had to ask, what could the elves promise you that you would offer them your service and sell your brethren into slavery? The boy shrugged his shoulders. They assured me an uncommon loyalty, a loyalty unknown to men, a loyalty despite the promise of their death. I have brought defeat to the elves, one defeat in one battle. I have contributed to the loss of the war for the elves. Have I made the right choice? I made the choice no other king would make. I made the choice you would never make. For the universal nation of goodness and prosperity, I patiently sow. All for an otherwise unsustainable, unachievable future where humanity's great foe, greatest foe, other than themselves, declines. The elves must trust me. Humans must not. What a peculiar king I am. You are a remarkable young man. What is your name? The boy winced and replied, The elves call me Vulyard. It is my place to end man's slavery and humility and poverty, the supremacy of humanity, and the fading away of all the other races will be my legacy. Yes, even after your passing demonstrates a king who despises his role in ruling, 
but anticipates a free world, his death must precede. King Chase took a step back. He did not like this frankness. Yes, kings were known for their candor. It was their offhandedness, their flippant attitude and arrogance, and that caused wars between men, and most certainly contributed to their oppression. King Chase decided to test their, this arrogant boy, see if, in fact, the boy must be feared or ignored. You are no more a king. The king that I look to honor, to offer my sword up to, that I pledge to deliver my nation and my world and my armies unto, the one who can succeed where I have failed. The boy replied, I have command over the dragons, and you do not. The dragon's name for me is Ju. What? King Chase was taken aback. He knew something about King Chase. His relationship with the dragons, more than he wanted him to know, more than anyone should know. Was the boy promised more than Chase could obtain? Should the boy succeed where King Chase failed? He would have to know his nemesis intimately. That's a lie, replied King Chase. I have only to say the word, and the dragons will appear from out of the sky. I know this for a fact. Oh, replied Ju, I know who you are, the prophesied king of the Wukdu, of the people with dragon blood coursing through their veins. The dragons assured me the world you would craft. But I am a clever king. Just one told me what I must decree. I cultivated trust among the elves. I sold them humans. I promised them defeat. I have bestowed upon the elves the knowledge of slaying dragons, of the weak spots they are cursed with. Further, I have delivered a dragon unto the elves. Chained he is there, by a chain that only I have the key to. The dragons would deliver the elves to me, if they only respond to my command. Chase insisted. I will summon my dragons. You will see who has command over them. Ju replied, Go on, then. Do as you must. But know that once you do this, you are no longer my superior, that you must serve me. You will see for yourself how my domain strengthens. And King Chase paused. He did not have to do this, did he? could use his command over the dragons more wisely, summon them into a battle in which he would need their might to decide the outcome. But King Chase demonstrated his command. He uttered an order, and instantly dragons descended from upon them. The flames of just one and depraved one and jealous one lit up the darkened sky. He even spied a new dragon, a dragon he had not seen before, a dragon he had no idea existed. The dragon terrible one distinguished himself from among the others, flying out of formation, creating tension among the other dragons, barreling into them, electrifying them, snapping at them, inciting their rage. Ju watched, smiling, the light of the belched flames dancing lively off his eyes. The elves did chain one of the dragon's own. For that, the elves must pay a very high price, but they are not the only ones. For I did fear you, King Chase, the only one that could take everything away from me, to rule instead of me. King Chase collapsed to his knees. He had not listened to the warning just one had given him. 
the foreboding that once he had made the one command, the command that would deliver the full might of the dragons for a very feeble cause, who deny any force they could deliver in the future. Don't disappoint me, my king, insisted Ju. You're my king, the one I have looked forward to, the one I have strived each and every day to put on the throne for fear of my failure. You are my tireless hope. And both materialized on the southernmost tip of a dry seabed. Miles to the north stood Mount Ish. Its brazen cap shimmered in the pale moonlight. And all around the pair stood an army of men, thirty-odd thousand strong. And that concludes this story, episode 7 of book 4. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, and I hope you join me again next week. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.